You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. Hope you take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 8, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Well, it was February 12th, 2023. Super Bowl 57. It was a heartbreaker. It was exciting as the Philadelphia Eagles gained an early lead. Late in the second quarter, the Eagles uh, kicked a field goal to go into the half with a 24-14 lead. In the third, the Kansas City Chiefs scored to make it a score of 24-21. And though the Eagles could not score in their final drive of the quarter, they were able to, or couldn't score a touchdown, they still were able to extend their lead with a field goal and make it 27-21. And as the third quarter came to a close, again, we see then the Eagles were winning. They were winning the whole game. They were winning. Then came the fourth quarter. Into the fourth quarter, the Chiefs would score a touchdown to to take the lead for the first time in the game. And then after a 65-yard punt return, the Chiefs found themselves on the Eagles' five-yard line. And they capitalized on that. So that was, that was rough. And they took the lead being a 35 to 27 point lead. And then through the great efforts of quarterback Jalen Hurts, the Eagles then tied the game. Yet in the end, the Eagles defense would be outplayed by the Kansas City's Chiefs offense there in the fourth quarter, and they would lose Super Bowl 57. Score was 38 to 35. But they were winning the entire game, right? Doesn't that mean something? Doesn't that count for something? No, it does not. Only the Kansas City Chiefs went home with the Lombardi Trophy, and the Eagles went home empty handed. So, obviously, I wouldn't grudge that up for fun, right? So, what's the point of all of that? Well, this week when I was doing yard work for my parents, I was listening through the main sessions and the breakout sessions of the Shepherd Conference. And in one of the breakout sessions, Carl Hargrove was talking about the pastor's personal holiness. And he discussed how a team, a football team or baseball team or whatever, uh, they could be leading the whole game. But if in the last moment they lose the game, That's all that really matters. There's no trophies for having the lead in the third quarter. And he compared this to ministry and the Christian life. That we can start off strong. We could be doing well. But if we do not end well, nothing else before that really matters. If we start off strong, but in the end we... 
we fall away into moral failure, or we turn from the faith altogether, we deconstruct, then there's no reward for us in the end. There's not even a that a boy. What matters is if we are faithful to the end. And, and I think that's clearly been seen as we've been going through 2 Timothy. That's been Paul's concern for Timothy, that he would remain faithful. And so as we come to this passage this morning, and we see the, the final exhortation, uh, the final charge that Paul has for Timothy in this letter, it is clearly what Paul is driving home to Timothy. Remain faithful. Finish strong. Be faithful to the end. We pick up the text after Paul had given such a, a grand statement about the Word of God, about Scripture, saying that it is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And in that section, we saw Paul remind Timothy of the influence that he had on Timothy so that Timothy would continue to follow Paul's example. And though, like Paul, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, Timothy, in contrast to such imposters, was to continue in what he had learned, what he'd been convinced of, because he knew from whom he learned it. Having learned from Paul, and even before Paul, having learned from his grandmother and his mother the scriptures from his youngest age, he learned that which was breathed out by God, that which would make one wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And so as Paul was calling Timothy to remain faithful, Paul called Timothy to continue in the Holy Scriptures. And so now, as we see Paul begins his, again, his final charge to Timothy, as this letter begins to come to a close, we come to what many have called the climax of this letter and what clearly is. What it's all leading up to is the charge that we see here in this passage. And so as we look through this passage, we see Paul's charge to Timothy, this strong charge in verses 1 and 2, and then the reason for the charge in verses 3 through 4. And then Paul calls Timothy to be in contrast uh, to those who do not want to hear the word of God and we see that in verse 5. And then despite the fact there are those who, who will not want to hear God's word. In verses 6 through 8, Paul tells Timothy that he is to fulfill his ministry. And so let's look at this passage here for this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will no longer endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. 
For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. As we take a look at this passage, and we see Paul lay this charge out for Timothy, and we see all that it consists of, we read here in the English Standard Version, Paul says, I charge, or, or as the, the New American Standard Version translates it, and others as well, it says, I, I solemnly charge. And the word carries this idea of a, a order, of a forceful command, saying, you have no choice in this matter. This is what you must do. Paul's saying, Timothy, I charge you, I command you, I am giving you a direct order. That's the force here. So what we see here is Paul exercising his apostolic authority. And Paul, he lays out a heavy charge as he, he then puts all the more weight on it in saying that he charges Timothy in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. And we've seen him command Timothy in such a way before. And in doing so, in saying that he's charging him in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, he's reminding Timothy who Timothy is ultimately accountable before. Therefore, Paul is adding weight, infinitely immense weight, to his already authoritative and weighty command. He even reminds Timothy that Jesus, whom he's accountable before, is the one who will soon judge the living and the dead. He's accountable before the one who is judge over all. The Apostle Paul had had made it plain in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that believers will be judged for their service, They'll be judged for reward or loss of reward. They will not be judged for their sin because Christ on the cross already dealt with the believer's sin. But it will be for reward. Christ will give to each one for their service. But again, this is only for believers. Only for those whom God perseveres, as his word says. And scripture does say it's God who causes us to persevere. Scripture also, though, tells us that it's, it's our responsibility for us to persevere and remain faithful. We see that in many places. We see in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, God's work in causing us to persevere, that, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion, that he will bring about obedience in us. We see in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So you have responsibility. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And why are they to work it out? Well, he says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And we've seen this responsibility uh, for uh, the believer to persevere and remain faithful throughout 2 Timothy. And we saw it specifically, for example, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, when we read, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. 
Each one will stand before Christ as Christ is their judge. Again, the believer for reward according to their service and their motives, while the unbeliever, the false convert who does not persevere in the faith, will stand before Christ in their sin, and so stand condemned before him to face God's wrath in eternal hell. Jesus is the judge of all, and and what we read here is that his judgment is imminent. It's, It's coming. At any moment, he will come, and he will bring his judgment. And Paul, giving this command in light of Christ being the judge, he wants Timothy to be ready to stand before Christ. And he wants Timothy to stand before Christ for reward because of his his faithful service to Christ. And so Paul then, he keeps piling on the reasons that Timothy was to obey his charge. And so he connects his command here to Christ's appearing into Christ's kingdom. When Christ does return, when he does appear, he's going to come and he's going to establish his kingdom. And when he comes in his kingdom, he's going to come with both reward and to repay the sinner for their sin. He will give to each one according to their deeds, as Romans chapter 2, verse 6 says. And the return of Christ is imminent. It's coming. And so even if you and I do not live to see the day that Christ returns, that, that we will return with him if we're believers, right? But if we're not here at the vantage point of earth, either way, we, we still need to be ready. Because even if we die, we're going to go before him. As one missionary has put it, uh, whether you die and go to him or he appears and, and comes to you, either way, you will stand before Christ. Either way, you will give an account. And then as we we look at verse 2, we see then the charge that that Paul is laying out for Timothy. And we see here that it is a a multifaceted charge. This is a charge that's made up of five Greek imperative verbs. In, In other words, it's made up of five commands. These commands are preach, be ready, reprove, or you could say convict, rebuke, and exhort. So first and foremost, and it is certainly foremost, because there is a logical connection between the first command and the commands that follow. So first and foremost, Paul commands Timothy to preach the word. The word for preach here means to publicly proclaim or herald. And what Timothy is to proclaim is the word. That which within context we see is uh, what Paul referred to in chapter 2, verse 9 as the word of truth. It is what we saw in chapter 3, verse 15 as the sacred scriptures. And what there in chapter 3, verse 16 we saw is that which was God breathed, which God breathed out. So it is the word of God that Timothy was to herald. Therefore, to remain faithful, uh, to fulfill Paul's charge, Timothy had to proclaim not his opinions, uh, not what was in accordance with what was culturally acceptable, 
not what people preferred to hear or even what Timothy himself preferred to preach. No, that was not what Timothy was to do. He was to preach the word of God. What he would give an account before Christ for was whether or not he preached the word of God or whether he preached something else. He was to proclaim what God said. And so Paul commands Timothy to preach the word. And to do so, Timothy must then be ready in season and out of season. So that's what Paul commands him next to do. This phrase, in season and out of season, can also be translated as when convenient and when it's not convenient. And in context, it would be from the viewpoint of the hearer of the word. When the hearer felt it was convenient, when the, when the hearer was ready to receive God's word, or in the seasons where the hearer was not ready or willing to hear God's word. In any case, Timothy was to preach the word. He was, be, he was to be prepared to preach, whether anyone wanted to hear it or not. Today, as society grows more and more with not just indifference towards God and his word, but with disdain towards God and his word, growing rapidly in that disdain and hatred. And so therefore, the culture puts pressure on us to not remain faithful to the word, to not, to not continue to be in the word. And yet, despite all that, we must be prepared to continue in the word even if it brings a cost. And therefore, if we're going as a church and as individuals to continue in the word, then we need teachers who will preach the word, whether it's convenient for them to do so or not. Then even when it may cause us to have enemies, even when there's a price to be paid for it, the word of God must still faithfully be preached and boldly preached. But even as we think about who may be an elder here at North Valley, to be qualified as an elder, they must be someone who is able to teach, right? Not that they're necessarily a regular teacher, but they must be able to teach. And what are they going to teach? What's going to dictate what they teach and proclaim? They need to be one who is ready in season and out of season to preach the word to preach verse by verse, explaining each verse in its context, and only then, based on the meaning that is taken from the context, apply Scripture then to our lives. That is what it is to preach the Word. And even if every man would stop up their ears at the proclamation of the Word, they must still preach it. And then, as, as last week, we saw that God's word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So then, by the very nature of proclaiming God's word, there is then, for the preacher, the necessity to reprove, or you could say convict. And so that's what Paul commands that Timothy would do. He commands him to reprove. And it's true, God uses his word to bring conviction. When the sinner sees that, that their lives have not lined up with God's standard of what is good and what is righteous, 
And so therefore, the sinner would see that they are under God's condemnation, that they, they recognize their guilt. They have conviction. That's what the word brings. The word also brings rebuke. For one, stubbornly persistent in their unrepentant sin. The word lays bare our sin for what it really is. An infinite offense against an infinitely holy God. The word is clear that it is rebellion against our Lord and sin is treason against our King. And therefore, our sin is worthy of death. Eternal death. Spiritual death. And my friends, we do no one any favors when we try to sugarcoat anything, when we play down sin and refuse to talk about sin and wrath. No, we must, and in doing so, point the unbeliever to Jesus Christ for salvation, for he's the only way to be saved. We must not avoid the conviction and rebuke of Scripture. We have to embrace it. Also, too, Scripture just doesn't only rebuke the unbeliever. <laughs> doesn't only bring conviction to the unbeliever. It brings conviction and rebuke to the believer as well. Whatever area of our lives that may not yet have come under submission to the Holy Spirit, whatever blind spots we have or whatever area that is not pleasing to God in us, God uses his word to convict us and, and rebuke us that by his grace there might be repentance. That the evidence that we ever truly repented is that we continue in repentance. We continue to put off our sin. And so Paul commands Timothy, reprove and rebuke. And to reprove and rebuke, that may be seen as two negative commands, but then they are followed by a positive command. And that's the command to exhort after through the preaching of the word, one brings reproof and rebuke, then they are to then bring words that urges and, and even encourages change in the right direction. And this can happen from the pulpit. Uh, it can happen with one-on-one -on -one discipleship, or it can happen in, in just the natural flow of our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That as we're walking with one another and we see the areas of each other's lives, that we can, we can address those things with one another and that we all need that. Every one of us. We all need that reproof and rebuke and exhortation. And we need it when it's sourced in God's word. And we point each other to God's word. But it's not enough for Paul to just command Timothy to reprove and rebuke and exhort. He also has to tell him how to do it. Paul knows, and Timothy should know, how often those who they try to call to repentance and exhort, how often they are slow and stubborn to learn. How often they are slow and stubborn to hear. I should know this, and I should know this because of how often I myself am slow and stubborn to learn and slow and stubborn to hear. And so reproof and rebuke and exhortation must be done, as Paul says, with all patience and teaching. 
Patience because it may take more than the first time, or the second time, or third, or fourth, or however. And it can be tempting for us to get frustrated, right? (laughs) How many times do I have to tell you? That's not a phrase my kids hear often. But we can get frustrated and forget how often the Lord has had to deal with us and tell us the same thing over and over again that he could say to us, how many times, God, do I have to tell you? And yet he's been patient with me. And I'm sure your testimony is that he's been patient with you. So we must be patient with one another and and those we deal with. Be patient as we reprove, rebuke, and exhort teaching the word. We must teach the word. And so for each of us, as individuals and and for the church, to grow and, and remain faithful, it takes the teaching of God's word. And how God uses his word to grow us in holiness, to make us more like him. So as we see this charge, this multifaceted charge from Paul to Timothy, and we see just how, how the weight that Paul puts on it, we might ask, well, why does he have to lay such a heavy charge onto Timothy to preach the word and be ready in season out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching? Why does he have to lay it on so thick? Well, it's necessary for him to. Why? Well, because of what we see in verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Paul is warning here of the consequences of false converts. The true nature of many who profess faith will be made known as they fall away and seek after what they want rather than seeking after God. As we saw, Paul warned Timothy that there would be difficult times in the last days so that Timothy would not be taken by surprise when he had to keep contending for the faith, when he had to keep correcting his opponents. They wouldn't be taken by surprise thinking this should be done by now and so then waver in his own faith. Uh, Paul, we saw earlier, warned him that there would be difficult times as these. And so too here he's warning Timothy that the day is coming when people will not put up with sound teaching. And this word that's translated here as sound, it's a word we've discussed before. It carries the idea of what is healthy. Uh, Matter of fact, uh, this Greek word is where we get our English word hygiene. The preaching of the word of God is the preaching of that which brings about spiritual health. It brings about what is good for us, namely to know God and lovingly obey him. Therefore, by necessity, it brings, again, conviction and rebuke, calling out that which is unhealthy in us, that which brings condemnation. But for the one who loves their sin, the one whose heart has not really been changed, so they hold on to their sin, those who feed their temptations and give them strength in their lives, 
for one who wants what, the, what is unhealthy that the world offers, they are the ones who do not want God's word because they do not want the rebuke or the conviction that's there in God's word. Therefore, people will not stand for those who preach the word, but will surround themselves with those who will tell them what they want to hear. That's exactly what we see there in verse 4. You know, when we were in 1 Peter, uh, we discussed how those who follow false teachers, they'll face the same fate as the false teachers. And as we discuss that, uh, no one should think then that those who've been led astray by false teachers are the victims of false teachers. Because that's just not what we see in Scripture. We see people following after false teachers because they're following after what they really want. They want those who will not confront their sin, who will not hold them accountable to doctrinal truths. And so they follow the Joe Osteens, the Joyce Myers, the Stephen Furtick's, the Hillsongs, the Rick Warrens, and Bethel Church, and Paula White, and, and we could just be here all day naming false teachers. People are not victims of false teachers, but in God's judgment, he gives them the kind of teachers that they really want. Apart from the saving grace in Jesus Christ, people will as is true of each one of us too, apart from God's grace. People will, as we read here, turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. It's our own wills, apart from God's grace, acting and choosing according to our sin nature, that will always choose what is in contrast to God. It takes the work of God to choose God himself and his word. And then as we come to verse 5 here, Paul again calls Timothy to be in contrast to the false converts. And we've seen him do this before. Here, it's specifically those he's already mentioned that gather teachers for themselves to, to scratch their itching ears. And so being in contrast to them, Paul commands Timothy to always be sober-minded. Or you could say, always be self-controlled. Uh, those who intoxicate themselves with myths, uh, with whatever is in contrast to the truth of the gospel, they do so as they are falling after their own cravings and desires. But Timothy is not to be led astray by his cravings and desires. No, instead, Timothy is to be sober-minded. He is to be one who practices self-control. My friends, we too, we're not to be led astray by our passions and desires. They're not what's to control us, but we are to be in submission to the Holy Spirit, and so therefore led by the Word of God. And as we are led by the Word of God, as we study the Word of God, as we know the Word of God, as we trust in it and believe it as what is God-breathed, then we grow in our discernment to be able to tell the difference between truth and error, that we will not be led astray. We won't be led by our passions. We won't be tempted by the trends of the world around us and the consensus of the culture. No, we will be led by the word of God. And then we see Paul also then commands Timothy to endure suffering. 
As we've seen throughout this letter, Paul has been calling Timothy to remain faithful, to follow his example. And as we've seen, such faithfulness to God and his word will invite suffering. And so we saw earlier in this letter, Paul called Timothy to suffer with him. So if Timothy is going to keep Paul's apostolic charge, if he's going to preach the word and be in contrast to those who follow false teachers, if he's going to remain faithful, he's going to have to endure suffering. Many turn away from the faith because they didn't expect their faith to make their life harder. They, they actually, they expected, and many were told, their faith would make their life easier, make their life better, and, and better in this shallow sense, really. And so since it wasn't made better the way they were told it, it would make it better. Matter of fact, it, it just really made it harder. It brought suffering, and they didn't expect to suffer, and they don't see Jesus as worthy of suffering for. When difficulty and suffering comes, they turn away. They abandon the faith. Again, because they, they don't see then Jesus is worth it. They weren't invited to come to Jesus for the sake of Jesus. They were came, invited to come to the faith for the sake of a better life. To have your best life now. But we come to Jesus because Jesus is where we find righteousness. Jesus is how we come to know God and live for him and his glory. And we see then, as the Apostle Paul has shown in every aspect of his life, we see that Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. He is worthy of living for him. Christ is worthy of obeying, even if that means suffering for obedience to him. He's worthy of us preaching the word, even if no one wants to hear the word. He's worthy even if we lose everything for following Christ, even if we die because we have followed Christ. And so as we see a world that is turning further and further away from any respect or dignity towards the word, uh, we must ourselves be ready to endure so that we would remain faithful to the word. And the next we see Paul commands Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. Uh, clearly, uh, there are those who are falling away there in Ephesus. Again, the false teachers and those who are led astray by the false teachers. There were those who prefer the, the light on sin and man-centered message. And Timothy, there ministering to the people there in Ephesus and, and preaching, how could he know who may fall away next? How could Timothy be sure everyone in front of him when he preached was saved? Only God knows the heart. Only God knows whom he has made his own. And that's why I'm convinced that those who say that, that we're only to preach the gospel if we know on a Sunday morning if there's an unbeliever there, that, that's the only time we really preach. And if we preach the gospel, we've got to make it a separate message. Uh, I am convinced that such a one is not closely acquainted with Paul's teachings. They're certainly not closely acquainted with 2 Timothy. No, preach the gospel, no matter the size of the church, because... Timothy, Timothy wasn't Jesus, so he could not be absolutely sure that no one before him would fall away. 
Therefore, he had to do the work of an evangelist. He had to preach the gospel. Also, when we say that we only preach the gospel, if there's an unbeliever among us, if we know it, that indicates then that we think the gospel is only for the unbeliever. But the gospel is for the believer just as much. The believer needs the gospel to remain faithful and persevere. The believer needs the gospel for every exhortation of Scripture that we would keep the commands and keep them with the right motives, not towards legalism, but keep them out of response to the gospel. Look how much he has loved me. Look what he has done for me. Look how glorious he is. How can I not love him in return? Of course I want to obey him. Of course I want to show that I'm so full of gratitude towards him. Look at him who is my Lord, and yet he became a servant, a slave, to humble himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. How could I not live in response to him? How could I not lay down my life in obedience to him? Look at all that he's done and all that he is. The believer needs the gospel. We need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves. That's why we have the ordinances. That's why we have baptism and communion. It keeps a picture of the gospel before us. We need to be preaching the gospel. We need to be living lives that are in, in view of God's mercies, in response to God's mercies. Also, too, the gospel safeguards us from being taken captive by philosophies and empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to the element spirits of the world, like Second Colossians 2 tells us. So therefore, Timothy had to do the work of an evangelist. And finally, Paul commands Timothy to fulfill his ministry. He was to execute all of his duties, all that God called him to as a pastor there in Ephesus, which really, I would argue, is summed up in all ten commands that are in this passage. He had to fulfill his ministry. He had to do what God called him to. And you and I, we, we are to do what God has called us to. We're to fulfill our ministries, each one of us. And so, brothers and sisters, what has God called you to? What is your ministry? What is your service to faithfully serve your Lord? And why, why does Paul say all of this to Timothy? Why has he laid out this heavy charge. Why, why has he called him to fulfill his ministry? Well, we read there in verse 6, he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Paul, as he is writing this letter, obviously, obviously, has not died a martyr's death yet, right? Or else he wouldn't be writing the letter. But he had already begun to offer his life as a living sacrifice. He had already laid down his life ready to die for his Lord. And Timothy would have to do the same. Whether or not Timothy's life would end in martyrdom, he would have to live ready to die. Now, the, the best traditions that we have, so it's, it's not what the Bible says, but again, it's, it's the best historical record we can find that we have, uh, would tell us that Timothy did die a martyr's death while he was preaching the gospel to worshipers of, of Diana there in Ephesus. Timothy would remain faithful. He poured out his life like his father-like mentor, Paul. 
Again, because like Paul, he knew Jesus was worth it. Again, whatever the cost, whatever we suffer, if it makes you lose your job, if family and friends turn away, Jesus is worth it. Even if, like Paul and Timothy, it costs you your life, know this, Jesus is more than worth it. He is awesome. He is our glorious Savior. He is our mighty King whose kingdom will never end. He's worth it. Even as Paul sat in that Roman prison cell, sitting there because of his faith, because of his faithfulness to Christ, he sat ready to die. And as we see here, he was sure that that moment was going to come at any time. Being sure that death was just a moment away. Calling Timothy to such faithfulness, he reflected on his own work, his own faithfulness. Reflecting on his life there in verse 7, he said, I have fought the good fight. He engaged in the struggle against the flesh and the world and all temptations. He, he endured suffering. He, he fought for souls and, and everything he endured was for the sake of the elect to the glory of God. He fought the good fight. And Paul says that he, he finished the race. He didn't just come to the end of his life after engaging in the struggle just to, in the end, disqualify himself in some moral failure. No, he finished the race. He fulfilled his ministry. And we see he kept the faith. Paul could have, at any point, decided to follow a different path, a path of less pain and one that did not lead to martyrdom. At any point, instead of saying Jesus is Lord, he could have declared Caesar Lord and got out of that cell. No, but instead, he kept the faith. He would not deny Christ. And brothers and sisters, if you and I, let's say, are blessed enough to come to the point in our lives where it is very clear that death is a moment away, and we have the opportunity, like Paul, to then reflect on how we have lived our lives. Will we be able to say what Paul says here? Will we be able to see such faithfulness in our lives that we can say, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. And could we then, like we see Paul here in verse 8, be so sure that ahead of us, was a great reward. Paul refers to a, a crown of a crown or a wreath here, which is what a, a winner in the ancient Olympic Games or or the head of states or or the victorious military leader would receive to honor them. And so in the New Testament it refers to the reward believers will receive after they have stood before Christ. And the specific crown or reward that Paul refers to here is righteousness. Paul was looking forward to the day when not only would he stand as righteous with the righteousness of Jesus credited to him, but he looked forward to the day when he would actually be fully righteous in eternal glory with his God and Savior. 
And this is what he says was laid up for him, or you could say stored up safely for him. This is what he was waiting for, what he was looking forward to. And he says the Lord, the, the righteous judge, would give this to him. And he said that he wasn't only going to give it to Paul, but Paul says that, that the Lord Jesus would give it to all who love his appearing. Saying all who, loves, who have loved his appearing, this is describing those who have shown the evidence of their salvation in their lives. Because you are one who either loves his appearing or you don't. They're the options. And every true believer loves Christ's appearing. They love the knowledge of the day that Christ is coming again. They look forward to that day because they, they love that day because they, they love him. And the more we love his appearing, the more we will look forward to it with great gratitude and anticipation. And the more we look forward to it with great gratitude and anticipation, the more that day is going to affect our lives here. Because as we look forward to that day when we will see Christ as he is, look forward to that day when, when we will be made like Christ, whole and complete as he is, we look forward to that day that we don't have to fear like so many in the world have to fear because it's a day of judgment for them, but it's a day of reward for us. And we look forward to that day when we are with Christ, we are like Christ, when we will reign with Christ, when we will be with Christ forever. The one we love. We look forward to that day when our beloved king receives from this world the honor and glory that is due him from this world, and that is a great day of rejoicing for us because we love him. And if we love him and desire for him to get the honor and glory in this life, then won't we live for his honor and glory in this life now? And so if we love him, we will serve him. If we live with great anticipation for that day, we recognize then that he is worthy of all honor and glory. He is worthy of our service. He is worthy of our lives laid down, poured out like Paul poured out his life. We recognize he is worthy even of our death. And what can our death do but take us home to him? And so, my friends, if you love his appearing, then it's going to affect how you live. That you will be faithful to the end. If you don't love his appearing, if you don't even give it a thought, if you wake up every day and, and it has no thought towards Christ, no thought towards living for him, no thought towards his worthiness, and no thought towards the day when you will be with him, if you just wake up and go about your day with no deliberacy towards Christ, can you really say you love his appearing? Can you really say uh, that, that you know your life is worthy, that he is worthy of your life lived for him? Can you say you love him? And if you can't say you love him, can you say you know him? You must first come to know him through faith. And you can only come to know him when you recognize and know that he is holy and just, which then shows you that you're not. You know him as king and lord. And we see that we haven't obeyed our king and lord. 
We've lied. We've stolen. We've, we've looked with lust. We've been unjustly angry. We've not put him first. We've earned his wrath and condemnation to stand before him as our judge. That's why he came the first time. He came to take that judgment on himself on the cross, to die in the place of all who believe on him and rise again with the declaration that he is worthy because he is Lord. And he is our returning Lord. And you and I who trust in him love his appearing. And we live for him. We live with great anticipation of that day, knowing that that's what eternally matters. Know that that's where our joy and our hope is set. Not in anything of this life or anything this world can offer. No, we look forward to that day when we will see him face to face. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.